Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Cooper and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This episode is a conversation with Michael Hahn, the author of Denim and Leather, a book chronicling the rise and fall of the new wave of British heavy metal. Superb book, superb book. And I like to do these literary episodes where we write and document and chronicle metal's journey, mainly because, as you'll find when you read the book yourself, and certainly some, some of the conversation we have, how pivotal and important the things that go on during that scene and that time are to what we see as current metal and, and then to the future of metal as well. Incredibly interesting and an in-depth book, uh, possibly the most definitive on, on, on the new wave of British heavy metal, the new album whole scene, and really, really well put together. And I'm, we have a conversation, me and Michael, I'd like to get him up maybe to do some kind of Q&A as well. I think that'd be quite nice as well too, because there's so much, there's such a, a deep, rich vein of, of information and so many different characters and stories within within the book, which I encourage you to to read. The book is out on the 24th of February, the hardback or an ebook, and I strongly recommend you, you check it out. Hopefully this conversation, this little chat now, will give you a little bit of a preview of the fantastic work in Denim and Leather, The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal by Michael Hahn. Ladies and gentlemen, it's really nice to have uh, today with us uh, a gentleman who wrote a book uh, about the rise and fall of the uh, the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Uh, It's out on the 24th of February. It's called Denim and Leather. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Michael Hahn to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. And how are you? Not doing too bad, not doing too bad. There's, it's an extraordinary book, sir, an extraordinary book for a number of reasons, and we'll try and get into some of them here. Uh, we'll, we, we're only going to touch the surface, I'm sure. For me, my introduction to sort of the new wave of British heavy metal was Rob Loonhouse and the cardboard guitar and Judas Priest, and that was where I was like, what is this and what's going on? What was your introduction to it? Well, it would have been as a kid, around about 10 or 11. So I was born in 1969. So I am a little too young, truly, for the initial wave of, of Nwobu. But, uh, you know, there was, wasn't really any pop music in my house. My parents didn't listen to it. My dad liked jazz. My sister didn't really care about pop music at all. And so I was open to whatever came my way. And what came my way in the first place was the music that other kids at school would play me. And there were these two brothers, Tom and Daniel Kenish, who liked heavy rock. Um, their dad had been into Cream and Stones in the 60s, and they were buying metal records. So that's how I first heard Mobham. And that led me to Tommy Vance and the Friday Rock Show. And that, that was my introduction, really. But at that point, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really understand that there's this thing called Nwobum, and then there's, you know, the first wave of classic rock. You don't think, it's, you don't think these are all different things. You know, you think... Black Sabbath are the same as Kiss, are the same as Saxon, are the same as whoever. And it was only as I got older that I realised that it was this discrete thing of its own. Obviously, I'd seen the the phrase Nwobam in Sounds and in Kerrang. But yeah, it was getting older that made me realise that this was a completely separate thing that had its own life. Because we we would have seen, um, I'm around the same age, we would have seen... We, you watch Top of the Pops, and all the acts that were on there were simply all the acts that were on there. It wasn't like, a, here's a metal act and here's a rock act. It was just, these were the musical acts of the time. We didn't really, you know, genres didn't really even exist. You know, it just didn't really even happen. And certainly the recognition of a scene didn't even happen and, and, the, and the birth of a scene. 
I will read the book. The initial thing that I was struck by was how the how you set it up, that it was like a series of sort of anecdotes and interviews with all the people involved in the scene. Uh, I kind of expected it to be almost just a, a, almost a cold reading of, of exactly what happened. I thought it was fantastic that you made that approach because well, you, you had moments like, it was almost like, you know, Joe Elliott and Neil Kay are arguing the room with you because you had differing accounts. I thought that was a fantastic way to approach it. Well, I didn't go into the book thinking there was a story that had to be told from A to Z. Um, because obviously Nawabam was not like, say, New York punk or like Seattle grunge or or like London punk or Britpop. It wasn't something that was concentrated in one place. It was diffuse. It was around the whole country. You know, every city and every town had their Nawabam bands. Uh, I grew up in Slough and our Nawabam band was Sledgehammer, who featured on Metal for Mothers. And, and Mike Cook, their guitarist, was in fact my supply teacher for a year at school. Although he always denied he was Mike Cook from Sledgehammer. We'd say, sir, 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 you're Mike Cook from Sledgehammer. <laughs> He'd go, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he had a Sledgehammer bag, badge on his jacket lapel. <laughs> he looked like Mike Cook because Mike Cook was the only <laughs> local celebrity in the local paper. And his name was Mr. <laughs> Michael Cook. It's kind of, why are you, why are you denying this? So every, every, <laughs> every town had their band. And that means that there isn't a single thing to focus on. So if you tell the story of New York, punk like in the brilliant book please kill me you basically focus around cbgb um, or in seattle you know, there's a very easy focus in the one that isn't a focus so my approach was to basically interview as many people as i could um, i had basically a year to do my interviews interview as many people as i could for as long as i could and then try and work out what the stories were after um, so more or less all my interviews, I basically took them from the start of their career till the end of 82, more or less. And once you do that, you see the common threads coming through. And the common threads were things like the club circuit on which they all grew up. Uh, the common threads were things like, you know, the gold rush of 1980. It was the importance of Top of the Pops and, and of the Friday Rock Show. And it was the role of the music press. And into that, you know, I put a couple, couple of stories of particular bands that I think are instructive. So Diamond Head, which is an object lesson, the perils of trying to do it yourself. And Venom, which obviously is one of the funniest stories in metal, but also, you know, proof that doing it yourself can work as well. So it was trying to, it was trying to find the threads. And it was an oral history um, because the original piece that inspired this was an oral history of Norman written for The Guardian uh, in 2019. And I, my agent, Katie, said, this should be a book. And I was, are you sure? Are you sure? Really? He went, no, it should be a book. So, yeah, I got to work on it. And, yeah, the oral history does, allows you to create dialogue within the text. Um, it's a much more dynamic way of doing it than simply having he said, she said. So a, a lot of what I did, I feel sorry for the people I interviewed first, because basically <laughs> they're the people whose stories are then put to other people and they get no comeback. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, a chunk of the interviews would always be, so-and-so says this, what do you say to that? And they go, no, no, that never happened. Yeah, it felt, it felt like, a, like almost like a murder mystery. He mm. saw this happen. No, 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 I saw him place it here. And there would be almost moments where someone would say something and the next person would say, no, that's bollocks, that didn't happen. It was, I found it, it brought it, it really brought it to life that, you know, at the, we Often it's romanticised that, that that period that everybody got on, that everybody was great, and, and all. Let's move forward for the for the for the sake of British metal, and it wasn't. You know, the, the rivalry between Samson and Maiden was something I I didn't even know was anywhere near as deep as it as it was. 
I get the impression that's very much a one-sided rivalry. Um, mm, I yes. don't think I don't think Maiden necessarily felt any rivalry. But I think because Samson had been around for a while, you know, they'd been recording before the album exploded. Because they'd been around for a while, I think Paul Sampson, obviously Paul Sampson is dead, so I could not talk to him. But, yeah, from talking to other people, the impression you get is that Paul Sampson was basically seeing a bunch of musicians three or four years younger than him come through and steal all his thunder. And I can imagine, you know, that would make you bitter. Yeah, Sampson were actually the first band I ever saw um, opening, opening for Whitesnake on the Saints and Sinners tour at the beginning of 1983. And even though I remember as a kid thinking, hang on, Samson, they're this band I've been reading about as long as I've been looking at magazines, and yet they're still only opening. You know, Samson's is, is one of the many careers that is a litany of missed opportunities and failure to capitalise. And also, you know, we have to be honest about this, not being good enough. I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. And it's true of every single scene that has ever existed. Most of Norbum was terrible. But then most of everything is terrible. Most punk was terrible. I love garage rock from the 60s. Most garage rock is terrible because I'm in, immersed in it. I love even the terrible stuff. Um, what's interesting with Morbum is that, you know, everyone was focused on it being an album genre. Everyone wants to record an album. In fact, it probably would have been better off if they treated it all like 60s garage punk. Just make your single. Get that single statement out there. And then you're done with the world. And we'd remember these bands for their one amazing single rather than the not very good album that had one amazing song on. Yeah, I, it's it, for me as well, it's, it wasn't a whole, the, a whole lot of musicians were discovering themselves for the first time. There was the people around them as well, people like Jeff and, and Neil Kay and stuff that were discovering this thing and what you do with it and how you put on a club night and what that actually entails. And, and then a whole litany of managers and, and representation who'd never... Know, knew how to market this material and never knew how to put this forward and, and operate with a, a major label and, and how to sell their, their ideas and their, and their bands. And the whole thing was like, yeah, there's, there's going to be some, some casualties when that happens. There's, it just it stands to reason. I thought it was interesting that um, still, even now, there were some people who didn't want to be in the book, who were, who were kind of like, I don't I didn't want to be even associated with the movement. And you think, you've lasted this long now you know, really, is it really damaging your, you know, your kudos and your your whole thing to be co connected to this movement? Is it really? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Maiden. Um, Maiden's management uh, were not interested in putting Steve Harris and Bruce Dickinson forward. Um, part of me understands, you know, why, why bother? You know, they are a huge, huge band. They have no need for this. You know, no need at all. Their place in history is secure. Uh, and all that can possibly come out is people scraping over things that happened in the late 70s. So I get it. But this kind of the denial that they were ever the new wave of British heavy metal. I spent a lot of time in the British Library reading old copies of Sounds, and that band embraced the new wave of British heavy metal. Same with Leopard, who now say, we were nothing to do with it. They embraced the new wave of British heavy metal. You can read old interviews and see those bands using the phrase and placing themselves as part of it now maybe they just thought this is good for a year and then we'll move on but it seems a bit disingenuous um so with maiden are represented in the book but through paul diano and dennis stratton and doug sampson who were all members through 78 79 80 and with dave lights who did their lighting tech and obviously you know loads of people who are around them a lot at the time but what's interesting is that leopard although they take the view too that we were not norman and certainly no one would dispute that Leopard moved further away from metal than Maiden ever did. 
Def Leppard are the most delightful people in the world to deal with. Um, their publicist set me up with half-hour interviews with Phil Collin, Rick Savage, and Joe Elliott, which, which was not enough. You know, these interviews were running three, four hours. And I said to each of them at the end of the interview, you know, is it, is it possible perhaps for um, me to do a follow-up? And they go, yeah, sure. I said, well, look, can we do it a simpler way rather than me going to your publicist, your publicist going to your management, your management going to you, you coming back to your management, your management coming back to your publicist, your publicist coming back to me. And all three of them just went, yeah, here's my phone number, here's my email, get in touch when you want to do the follow-up. And I ended up doing hours with all of them. And I think the, the kind of measure of, at one point I said to Rick Savage, why are you so helpful? What, what, <laughs> arena rock bands are not like this. He went, well, you know, we've seen other people be wankers. We never understood what they really get out of it. So if it's not doing us any harm, we try to be helpful. Um, and yeah, a couple of months after I'd done the interview, I was watching the cricket on telly and I texted my friend Jeff, who, who loves Kent, uh, who thinks Joe Denley is the saviour of English cricket. And Denley had just failed for the second time. And I texted him, good to see your man Denley is costing all the text again. And I sent it to the wrong, uh, wrong number. And I got a text back two minutes later from Rick Savage saying, I don't think this is for me. But while we're on the subject, can you think of any good reason why Johnny Bairstow isn't batting at five, apart from anti-Northern <laughs> bias? You know, so well, I, 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 will, I will hear no bad word ever said about Def Leppard from now on. But, yeah. but to be honest, this is true of every, everyone I interviewed for my book. Everyone. Uh, mm. They were all absolutely delightful. And um, what really infused me was, I mean, not... For some of them, what happened 40 years ago is the biggest thing that ever happened in their life. There's, there's no doubt about that. But for a lot of them, you know, the fact that this music happened and continues to happen for them is a source of enormous joy. Rob Weir of Tigers of Pantang, you know, who has a, an utterly unremarkable day job, yet still creates the time to get out on the road with Tigers of Pantang. It doesn't matter where he's playing. I mean, they had a gig cancelled just before Christmas in London. It was a free gig in a little pub um up in archway so they're doing that and on the other hand he's saying and and then we get to go over to brazil you know and we'll go to sao paulo and turn out two thousand people will come out for us and the perseverance i think is an actual story of heroism for from a mm. lot of these people um i think it's easy for people who have no understanding of have never been part of metal which is true for most people in my world i work in broadsheet newspapers mainly and yeah everyone who likes metal knows that broadsheets are not, they laugh, basically. Um, and I did not want to be that. I did not want to be the person laughing, partly because I was a metal fan as a kid, partly because I've written a lot about hard rock in recent years. And honestly, hard rock people and metal people are just much, much, much better to deal with than, you know, the indie bands or the hipster bands. Um, but partly because it's a, it's a serious and real part of British music that not enough attention is given to. I mean, Norbum completely formulated and codified what we understand as heavy metal. And yet you do not read the big retrospective features about it in Mojo or Uncut. It gets in classic rock, but it doesn't get in the general titles. And it really should. It's an important part of the British musical story. Yeah, it's, I, I thought Joe Elliott was, was particularly candid and very open. I think, you know, certainly when he's talking about some of the, the mistakes he made from, uh, you know, record point of view, and then later on in the book when they talk about, you know, high and dry and, 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 and the kind of having a lot of money and, and America opening up for them, I thought he was incredibly honest, but he, you could tell he genuinely loved it. You could tell he genuinely adored the music. He, he, really, he really did, you know, whatever your views on him. 
his approach was that he played music that he loved, you know, and he was he was completely open about it. I thought as well that you know, it seemed it seemed interesting at the very beginning of of the book when you talk about when it's first getting reviewed and first being talked about. Once again, there was a romanticism for me where it was like from the off they were like, "This is the next amazing thing, and it's going to explode." And it wasn't was. Uh, initially there was people in sounds talking about it but not in necessarily a great way but they were still talking about it it took a while didn't it for it to, to really develop sort of people to to even when 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 someone like jeff or neil was reviewing a show they would still be pretty brutally honest about it wouldn't they there was no like you know jumping on a whole bandwagon it took a time to start moving didn't it yeah, and the gig review that invents Nwobham is Jeff Barton's review of Neil Kay's Heavy Metal Crusade at uh, the Music Machine in London, now Coco, in May 1979. It's a double-page review, and you think, if a, if a music magazine is giving two pages over to a gig review, then this must be something spectacular. But instead, you know, Jeff Barton said that, well, Samson, great stage show, songs aren't there, Angel Witch, the first Black Sabbath album through a cement mixer, as he famously described them. And even Maiden, he likes Rothschild, which he calls Rockchild in the review, but he's not that much, that keen on anything else. And it was his, his editor, Alan Lewis, who said, three bands on a bill, all doing the same kind of thing. We've got something here. He, Alan Lewis invented the phrase new wave of British heavy metal. And Jeff Barton, now, it needs to be said, I didn't speak to Jeff. Uh, Jeff did not reply to many requests for emails. As far as I know, he has nothing to do with music anymore. Um, and people who've known him for years get no reply either. So I do not have this from Jeff himself. But, I mean, certainly you can see reading sounds through 79 and 80. He starts off being you know, a little bit sniffy, and then he gets right into it. Going, yeah, this really is exciting. There are loads of bands. And then by the middle of 1980, he's pretty fed up of the whole thing all over again. Famously, Jeff Barton turned on Def Leppard for... For, for pursuing America too vigorously, which Def Leppard are still itchy about. They point out that Iron Maiden went to America first, you know, and honestly, if you're working in the basement of a factory in Sheffield, what are you dreaming of? You're not dreaming of Barnsley or Manchester. You are dreaming of Los Angeles and New York. Um, and he turned on Neil Kay to a certain extent. He reviewed the Metal for Mothers compilation album, which is a not very good, but hugely important record in the history of Norbum. Um, and you get this sense of sniffiness coming out from him. Occasionally, he'd yeah, get infused by things. But, you know, he, I think there was a certain suspicion of Nwobam, of, of the chances that were coming in on the back of Nwobam. It's, it's the whole, like, he was, he was a kingmaker, but also ready to, to pull the leash on someone like Def Leppard, who was like, actually, I'm going to take him down a peg or two. And, and I thought that that's maybe one, certainly thing, something I got from the book that I wasn't aware of. I thought it was... Everybody was excited for it. Everything was brilliant, and it was and it was a great thing. But it wasn't. It was very. They tried to curate it to a certain degree, try and angle it and, and move it and move it along, which I thought was fascinating. The the, the great thing that it got from, probably the source of what a large amount of the, the the great stories in it is, was the DIY mentality of of everything. You know, we talk about the the story in the book about the flower pots and stuff, and 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 it was brilliant. I, I just thought, you know, this was a time when when there was there was no health and safety that you know venom were plugging things into all kinds of walls and and it was it was a glorious time and you wonder how much of stagecraft came from that as well you know well, how much of that actually moved into the mainstream 
Well, the, the realisation that there was a fertile seam to be mined in talking about homemade pyro came when I think I think the first person told me a story about their stage effects going wrong with Steve uh, Zodiac of Vardis, who talked about making his own strobe light after seeing Bowie and painting the light with matte black paint just before the show and then the light coming on and it being a, a fan creating the strobe effect and the fan blowing wet black paint all over the first few rows of the audience until the working men's club manager shut the show down. I thought, hey, I should ask other people if they had things like that. And every single band did, every single band. Um, and, and this is, I think this actually is one of the areas where one of the things that people don't talk about comes in, which is the absolute centrality of glam rock to the album. People never talk about that. They talk about Sabbath, they talk about Zeppelin, they talk about maybe a bit about Quo, but they talk about the actual heavy bands. But every single one of these musicians, and they pretty much all say it in the book, grew up in the early 70s watching Top of the Pops. And what they loved was T-Rex and Bowie and even Mud and, and Sweet. Sweet. I mean, you can hear so much sweet in a lot of Norm, especially, I think. Um, and what these bands were doing with their homemade pirates and everything was basically trying to do glam rock, but in the back room of pubs. Hey, we're going to put on this incredible, spectacular show in front of 12 people in the back of a pub in the East End with often disastrous consequences. I mean, I think there are three separate people whose legs get set on fire. Um, there are assorted, you know, incidences of audience members nearly getting killed. It's just, I mean, it's, it's staggering. The lack of health and safety, yeah. I mean, it is a bit worrying, but I love the invention of these people, the absolute dedication. It's, it's like a will to power. We will make ourselves into a rock band just by behaving like a rock band. But it's kind of not in that, ugly cynical way that we saw on the sunset strip a few years later um no one is really thinking about you know this is our passport to doing shed loads of class a drugs no one really talked i asked about drugs and most people were saying uh, no no we drank mm. beer that's what we, we drank beer really um i mean we all know there are some bands in that scene who did do drugs uh, or certainly got into loads of drugs later um, but at that point, it was all pretty innocent. And the innocence is, is the absolutely delightful thing about it all. The absolute lack of cynicism. You know, Angel Witch or whoever were not making pyros in a pub in Plumstead just because, in the hope that, you know, a major label come down and see them. They wanted a major label to see them. They were doing it because they thought that's what a rock show is. And it doesn't matter where we're doing it. It's got to be a rock show. And I think that's mm. great. I, 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 that's, I, that's what I'm saying. It's a wonderful sentiment that they were playing Fuge and dressing Fuge and wants to be this great big rock show and Pyro was a part of that. They had no... The, the after effects and getting signed and stuff were, were arbitrary to them. It was like, let's put on a big show because that's what we saw and we wanted to be when we were kids. So let's just do that. Let's just put risk, in this, some cases, life on limb to produce this, this massive, this massive mm -hmm. show. I want to talk a little bit about, um, about Tommy Vance and, uh, and John Peel as well. Um, John Peel, sadly, obviously no longer with us, and and he was um, he was a lot more instrumental than I thought. I, I first were discovered John Peel when he was playing Napalm Death and and some of the thrash bands like later on and talking about them, and he he became a window into that world. But he was incredibly important as well as and and obviously the legend there is that Tommy Vance was like yourself, very much a, a staple of what I would listen to on the radio. For me, that's when um, that whole scene took a new level. Um, because it kind of it gave it that legitimacy then. It seemed to be incredibly important. That radio show seemed to be incredibly important. Um, you know, you had sounds first, 
and they were talking about singles on that. But then you actually had a radio which opened it up across the whole country then. And I would dare say that those shows would have been heard across the water as well in the States, and it would have de definitely been the, the seeds of that. So, you know, Tommy Vance and John Peel, they were certainly, you know, and I suppose Neil Kay as well to a certain degree, they really helped it move to the next level, it sounds like, in the book. Yeah, Tommy Vance and the Friday Rock Show. The Friday Rock Show was the loud hailer from the Wobble. It was the, the one place where if you weren't living in London or Newcastle or Birmingham or one of the big cities that had a bunch of bands, it was the one place you could hear these groups. Uh, you know, you tune at 10 o'clock on a Friday night and you'd wait to see who would there usually be one repeat session and one new session and you'd wait to see who it was. And you'd listen to it and think, oh, that's a bit rubbish, that's a bit rubbish, that's a bit rubbish. It's the same as you do to any show that you love. But then this stuff would come out. But yeah, Peel gets underplayed because of the Friday Rock Show. Because the Friday Rock Show is such a huge lightning bolt to it all. Peel gets underplayed. But so many of these bands got their first radio play from John Peel. Now, he was never going to go you know, all in behind Nwobam. It was not his kind of music. But when those first singles were coming out, especially before Nwobam had become codified, you know, Peel was playing them because they sound like, you know, high-energy DIY rock singles. Early girls' school sounds more like Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers than it does like Saxon. You can mm. see that being completely up Peel Street. That he played Def Leppard surprised me, but you know, obviously, yeah, he valued the kind of Hutzburg Joe Elliott walking up on stage when Peel was DJing at Sheffield University saying, Here's my single, play it. Vardis he played, and Steve Zodiac says, Yeah, I think he probably thought we were a punk band. But it, it happened a lot that Peel would play this stuff. But yeah, once the Friday Rock Show was getting these bands in for sessions, obviously that became the destination. And um, I mean, by the time I started, but Peel and metal, you see, it is a thing. I, I started listening to Peel in 1983 because I, I noticed when he was on top of the pops, there was always a metal band on and he was always less scathing. Now, being a kid, I assumed that maybe the presenters had some sway over what went on top of the pops. And think, oh no, actually, later on, no, they very much don't. This is just coincidence. There's often a metal band on when Peel's there. So I started listening to Peel. I heard things like The Damned and Johnny Thunders, and realised that there was a continuous, a common ground of music that I could work through, which it did in my teens lead me eventually to completely desert metal in favour of the Smiths. Uh, but you know, but the, it is, it was part of a continuum, and yet yeah, Peel matters. Tommy Vance matters. But what was also interesting was hearing people like Tony Wilson, not Tony Wilson of Factory Records, yep. Tony Wilson, producer of the Friday Rock Show, say press was more important. And then hear people in the labels and publicists say, yeah, press was more important than the radio in those days. It definitely was. And you realise the incredible power of sounds and Kerrang. Mm. You know, loads of people said a sounds cover story was a guarantee of a hit album. As simple as that. Um, maybe in a way that getting played on the Friday Rock Show was not. I don't know. I mean, maybe because the Friday Rock Show was 10 till midnight on a Friday night. And as Joe Elliott points out, everyone but the socially maladjusted and too young are actually out at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Mm. But yeah. But without the Friday Rock Show, yeah, of course, Norbum was already happening. But the Friday Rock Show was the great amplifier. The Friday Rock Show was the, the thing that allowed people like me to hear Holocaust or Blitzkrieg. That, we, uh, that I would never have been able to do otherwise. It's interesting as well, uh, listening to the, to the book, and certainly at the beginning, we just talked about it then, talking about Peel, that, you know, the end of, like, 78, 79, and the end of punk, 
it did really lay a groundwork for no album. It, 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 there was a, you can very much see where kind of the strands kind of ran from punk, that DIY type of thing and all that kind of movement. You see the whole thing moving forward. And in hindsight now, when, when you look back, you can see all the lines that were followed almost and, and the stream that led to the, to the ocean that eventually was metal as it is. And, and then you can see it when it travels over to the States and, and, and Brian Slagle and, and Metal Blade. You can see them going, well, actually, we've seen this here. We're going to do our version. We'll bring Raven over. We'll do our version. And then you can see when we get to you know Metallica and then eventually the Big Four. It's a, there's a very clear trajectory. One of the things I was going to ask, uh, Mike, that, that I really want to know is that you've analysed the scene and you've analysed you know, the, the minutiae of it, and you've you, obviously you, you, you listen to other music and seen that scene as well. Did you suddenly get onto those barometers that another scene was beginning? Can you, like we talked about Seattle and grunge, you could you see those things happening again? Could is there is there a world where we can have scenes sprout up that organically ever again? Well, that's one of the kind of perennial questions that I think music writers puzzle over because the web makes it so difficult. Things can't happen. Nwobam is, as I said earlier, Nwobam is completely different from every other scene because it's not geographically tied to one town. So, yeah, something like Nwobam probably could be because the web makes these things much more possible. Um, But it also makes, you know, kind of insular city scenes harder because the information gets out quicker. Uh, before a scene has had a chance to kind of solidify itself. Um, so I think that stuff is less likely, but it still happens. I mean, in South London two, three years ago, there was that sudden rise of a bunch of indie bands who've gone on to a slightly bigger thing, Shame, Goat Girl, Black Midi. Uh, they all came from the same scene based around the Windmill Pub in South London. And those groups have all gone on to, you know, the charts and big rooms. So it does happen. But I think the days of the scene in the sense that you and I, middle-aged men, think of it are probably gone for now. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Witten Wobbum, I mean, it had the – one of the things – it doesn't frustrate me because it was, wasn't my problem, but <clears throat> one of the things that slightly baffles me is why, after Pyromania, everyone made that turn towards looking to America, and they virtually all did. Um, even I suppose at this point, although I remember reading about Metallica in Kerrang, maybe maybe late 82, early 83, I do remember reading about them. So, but even as one strand of Norman was being picked up by a new bunch of groups in America, you know, right, the fast, hard, loud stuff, the fact that Pyromania sold so many records completely distorted everything. And I think a lot of people, labels and managements, had their heads turned far, far, far too much. I mean, it might have been worth them considering the fact that there were groups having huge commercial success with actually heavy music. You know, Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest from 83. I think that's probably the heaviest metal album to have been released on a major to that point. Massive success in America. Maiden getting bigger and bigger with every every go without feeling the need to write, um, you know, kind of commercial harmony, heavy rock songs. It's not that I do not like commercial harmony, heavy rock songs. If I'm absolutely truthful with you, I would rather listen to Pyromania or Hysteria than 99% of, you know, studied and fist-punching true metal. But, you know, the lure of America was so great. And they 
they all admit this. I mean, Lars Ulrich says the thing that killed the new wave of British heavy metal was America because they forgot about the British part of it, and that was the most important part of it all. Yeah, the the the, the working men's club almost that whole mentality that going up and down the M1 corridor and in in a van type of thing. You know, once you in the cold, once you've switched that to the states and it's all beaches and it's all warm and uh, you know, all of the views that you've seen in movies before, it changes. It changes everything. You know, it changes yeah. the whole the whole stance of what you what you're trying to do. You know, it probably did. It it probably did. It could certainly if it like like every uh, sort of scene and genre, it, it just couldn't survive past that. I don't think. I don't think it it, it had the means to survive. I think it was. It was only a, a, a very narrow lifespan anyway, because yeah. once people realized as well, if they could fill arenas with, with this stuff that Judas Priest mm. could do an arena mm. tour, you know, and, and, and you, so you take some, like you've got another thing coming and it becomes this massive radio hit. And you, once that happens, then there's the blood's in the water, isn't it? Well, the other thing is that people thought that Pyromania was easy to copy and Pyromania was not easy to copy. Mm. Pyromania took eight months to record. It cost £700,000 to record and it had Mutt Langer producing. But what labels would do instead of that would be, okay, we'll have a go at that, and we'll give the band £20,000, two weeks in the studio, and a guy who wants engineered for Mutt Langer. And you do not get the same results. You, you just don't. Of course you don't. You know, Pyromania was a masterpiece of commercial metal, and uh, the other records that tried to copy Pyromania were not masterpieces of commercial metal. You know, it's it, it'd be like, I don't know, well, you see, you see these copycat things happen all the time. You know, one group has a huge success with something that's very intricately done, and everyone tries to do it. Yeah, and the difference between, I don't know, Diamond Heads Canterbury and um, Pyromania is the same as the difference between Baccarat's Yes Sir, I Can Boogie and the Bee Gees Spirits Having Flow. You know, clearly the Bee Gees are doing it right and Baccarat are a cheap knockoff. This happens. It just happens. Yeah. It seems as well, like certainly when every so often there's lists of albums and, and, and songs and stuff. And I was, whilst reading, was 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 listening to these songs as mm. well and to kind of get a better sense of place with it. And it seemed to be that, you know, the minute like something rose up, everything that, that went underneath it kind of kind of wrecked everything. So you'd get someone doing a great album or a great couple of pieces of work and then five or six other bands all doing something terrible that somehow diminished from that mm. as well, which is extraordinary, especially when you listen to, to albums as a whole and groups of albums when they came out in specific years. I thought that the uh, the whole section I had no idea of uh, about Monsters and Monsters of Rock was absolutely mind-blowing, Michael, absolutely mind-blowing. It's something in the book, ladies and gentlemen, that it, I guarantee, unless you were really were there, uh, you had no idea what, what went on. I found that absolutely fantastic. That as a real insight into a group of guys that go from a working men's club to playing in front of many thousands of people at a festival, to the people who organise it, to the people who, who, who attend, someone like Andy Copping, you know, attend these, these places. That was an extraordinary time, that. Yeah, what this? Uh, there are so many important things that come out of New Album. I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's the, it's the place where metal gets a DIY culture from, completely. It's the place where metal gets its look from, completely. You know, Leather and Studs comes from New Album. It's a place where, obviously, the sound of metal has changed in the 40 years. But before this, you know, hard rock was all big, open chords. Nwobum basically gives us, you know, that kind of palm-muted attack. But also, um, Nwobum gave us the dedicated metal festival, which is now just such a staple 
of live music. Monsters of Rock at Castle Downton Racetrack in 1980 was the first ever dedicated metal festival. You know, Reading would have metal bands on, but it would also inevitably have the Climax Blues Band and Dr. Feelgood on somewhere, without fail. Um, but uh, Monsters of Rock was hard rock and metal only. Now, while it was basically put on as a rainbow gig to finish the Down to Earth tour, it was clearly also a festival. That's how everyone took it, as a festival. And this, the importance of this gathering of people in one place, not just for the commercial aspect, proving that this could be done and be a success, but also from the sense of unifying a scene, which is what the people who went there talk about, is hugely, hugely important. I mean, and this notion of metal as a tribe that gathers comes from Monsters of Rock, I think, absolutely directly. Absolutely. And I think, like, it's interesting, the next Monsters Rock after that was headlined by ACDC. It really, it really exploded, didn't it? It really kind of, like you say, that was the, the absolute sort of zenith of, of that particular moment was, was, was Monsters of Rock. And it give, it give all the bands on there a, a, a real eye-opening, like you say, they, you know, they talk about walking on stage and before they go on stage, genuinely fearful, genuinely mm. uh, uh, scared, and then coming out. I thought it was a wonderful to read the book and see them come from the working men's clubs to, in front of four people to that. I thought that was a wonderful journey. Um, and if any, like, kind of, for, for a band even starting now, a young metal band now starting now, understanding that the challenges have changed to a certain degree, but some are very similar. You know, there's still, there's still mm. some similarities, especially with with new waves of, of other music that are coming now. Yeah. There are certain similarities, and you must be seeing them too. Well, what's interesting, if you look at Monsters of Rock, so the only true Nwobam band on there, I think Judas Priest counts as Nwobam, even though they predate yes. it, because they find their identity during Nwobam. But the only true Nwobam band on there is Saxon. Now, what's incredible there is that 18 months before, Saxon had been unsigned. They were unsigned at the start of 1979. By the summer of 1980, they're middle on the bill at a big rock festival. Now, I don't think that would necessarily be that uncommon these days, uh, where we have these either the we have the hyper-accelerated pace whereby people go from their bedroom to stars in three months, and at the same time, we have this other hyper-slow pace where bands take five years to make a record. Uh, but without the middle ground in between. <clears throat> but at the time, for Saxon to go from the working men's clubs and the mecca ballrooms or whatever of the North East and South Wales, which was their big circuit before they broke, to go to playing in front of 35,000 people at a festival was just extraordinary. And you're right, Steve Dawson talks about that in the book, about the incredible feeling of stepping up and seeing that many people. Yeah. I mean, the thing is now, with the nature of festival season, you know, a band can start doing the festivals in May, carry on doing them till September. And in that time, they will have played in front of that many people, you know, a dozen, two dozen times. And it doesn't have the impact, it doesn't have the excitement for either fan or for band that it did then. But every single person who is involved in Monsters of Rock talks about it, you know, as if it was the greatest day of their life, whether they were bands, fans, yeah, even, even people like Paul Lowesby, who promoted it, who now manages Pink Floyd, um, yeah, Paul Lowesby talked about this. I, I genuinely didn't expect him, given that he is actually quite a powerful person, to be willing to entertain me. But, oh, he just went off on one for an hour telling me every single thing he could remember about Monsters of Rock. And also, when you hear his version of the story, you realise how close to disaster it came. Yeah. You know, that first there were very few advanced ticket sales. Then there was a load of rain in the run-up to it. 
which caused a mud bath at the front of the stage, which caused the stage to sink by a couple of feet from one yep. side to the other. The stage was on an actual incline because of the mud. The fact that he'd forgotten things like, oh, you need running water on a festival. There was no running yep. water on a site for 35,000 people. It's just absolutely incredible. I mean, he looks back on this with this kind of, what was I doing? But, yeah. you know, they did it. They did it. And people like that, there are so many pioneers, people who don't get talked about so much. We we talk about Iron Maiden, we talk about Def Leppard, and we talk about the bands that didn't make it, like Diamond Head. But it's the people like Paul Lowesby, who put on Monster Rock, people like Neil Kay, who ran the Soundhouse, people like Tommy Vance, Jeff Barton, and all the right. There are so many people who made heavy metal explode in 1979 and 1980, and it's not just the bands. And, what, and what's fantastic, and I think, ladies and gentlemen, you'll get this from, from, from reading the book, is that this really is a celebration of those people, of the work they put in and the recognition that they, they, they for so long, some have, have gone completely unrecognised. And, and, and I thought it was marvellous and heartwarming. But it's a t like it's, it was a tale like your Hollywood couldn't write. It was so, there's, there's so much there. And there's a wealth of fantastic music as well that I thought i was i was fully in, involved in the scene with that i had no idea this, there was there was bands like praying mantis that i had no idea of is there is there a chance as well mike that maybe we might get an expanded edition of this book because there was clearly so many people you couldn't get into there uh, you know members of courts and stuff that you couldn't get into speaking well i i think probably not um it's going to be published in america later this year and the american publisher asked if i'd like to put additional material in um and I think not, because actually one thing one thing is that basically every band's story is the same. And there comes a point where I, I actually don't want to put another band in because it's just going to repeat everything. Yeah, we made the single, that got noticed, then we got signed for an album deal, we did some gigs, it was great, we supported, insert name, a big band, then it all started going a bit wrong. Most of the stories are the same. And because this is the weakness, because the bands aren't all in one place, there aren't the interactions between them that you can spin off from the stories. So, <clears throat> I mean, the last really big, good oral history of music that I read was Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman, which is about New York in the early years of this century. So it's about Interpol and LCD sound system and the Strokes and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and groups like that. Because those groups are all in the same place, there are interactions. They can tell each other's stories. But once you get a group like Holocaust or Blitzkrieg, all they can do is tell their own story. There isn't anything to do with anything else. Um, so in some ways, kind of the most problematic chapter for me here is that in this book is the one about the occult. Um, mm. Because, you know, Witchfinder, sorry, Witchfinder General, Demon, um, and Venom actually have nothing in common with each other. They were all using the occult for different reasons. And then I got sidetracked by the fact of, you know, the the perpetually thorny question of heavy metal records, which ended up meaning that I had to go back and put tons of stuff in about the contractual arrangements of which find the general to avoid being sued for libel, um, <laughs> which gets a bit frustrating because that takes the pace out of that chapter. But, you know, you were mentioning your kind of groups who made little impact. Um, and which find a general who I have loved for a long time, but a group that never get mentioned in polite society, but what an incredible band. They invent doom metal in 1982. Yeah. They do. Yeah. And the song Free Country on their first album is a song about psychedelics. It's a song about mushroom tea and LSD. And, hey, guys, Cayuse, Queens of the Stone Age, I think you're watching this, aren't you? Here's a heavy metal band singing about psychedelics. Yeah. No one else has been doing this. 
De- death. I went back and listened to Death Sentence and stuff, mm. and I was like, this is extraordinary. This mm. is it's extraordinary to the point where I was like, there's so many bands over death here, and I hadn't I'd heard of the band. I hadn't really listened to the back catalog. It's only essentially two mm. albums, but yeah. going back, I was I was absolutely. Um, I couldn't believe how close some bands had, had, had flown to them, you know, and they're doing a massive, massive debt to those bands. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, Lee Dorian of Cathedral um, is absolutely explicit about you know, his band's debt to, to Witchfinder General. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's fascinating, too, that Stourbridge, a little town in the West Midlands, produced two of the most influential, not successful, but influential of northern bands. On the one hand, Witchfinder General, on the other, Diamond Head. And it chuffed me when I was wrapping up the book to learn that Brian Tatler and, um, oh my God, I'm now forgetting the name of the man from Witchfinder General who I spent months trapping that, tracking <laughs> down. Honestly, he was so hard. It's Phil Cope, isn't it? Please tell me it's Phil Cope and I haven't got this Phil, wrong. Philip, I think it's Phil, yeah. Yeah, Phil Cope of Witchfinder General. <laughs> Phil, Phil and Brian go out for a drink every so often in Stourbridge, which I thought was my favourite thing. And if I could go and listen to Phil Cope and Brian Tatler, who I bet do not talk about heavy metal, I bet they talk <laughs> about grouting the bathroom and paving the driveway and all that stuff. Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they do. I would be massively disappointed if they didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm going to wrap things up. Are you planning to um, are you planning to do a, a talk in, in a live situation uh, about this in Camden, did I see? Well, there's, there's an event on, well, maybe after this has happened. It's next Monday, the 22nd of February. Um, mm-hmm. The World Metal Congress is doing an event at the Black Heart in Camden. And mm-hmm. uh, John Deverell from Tigers of Pantang will be there with me. And also there'll be a heavy metal pub quiz afterwards run by Jerry Ewing, who edits Prog Magazine. Um I'll be doing various other podcasts. Um, I'll be speaking at some of the music festivals this summer. I have to confess that it appears that Bloodstock and Download do not have literary stages, so I'm unlikely to be at those two talking about it. Uh, But but End of the Road, Green Man, festivals like that, I will be there telling the people who come to listen to their American folk music about the many marvels of heavy metal in England in 1980. Thanks very much, sir. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. That was great fun. It's great to talk there to Michael Han, the author of Denim and Leather, The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, a book out on the 24th, which I, as I say, strongly encourage you to read. It's a fascinating fascinating chronicle of that time it's nice to talk to michael as well someone from you know the guardian and and, and like he said the broadsheets and uh, a man of, of of words and about metal you know often sometimes seen um not as important and it clearly is and it's nice to that he that he took the time to to sit down with us and even better he spent like he said a year putting this book together as well which i once again strongly strongly urge you you check out it's a fabulous read I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the show. And I'd like to talk to many more authors and people who uh, curate and talk about the scene and document it, the historical relevance of metal, where it's uh, been and where it's going as well. I think that's incredibly important. I hope you enjoyed this. And as always, see you at the show. Bye.